The first Bible reading is from Isaiah, what some have affectionately always called the gospel according to Isaiah. Maybe you'll see a little bit of reasons why as we read this passage in Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 11, which is page 615 if you're in that blue Bible pew there. The very first part of chapter 55 is God's invitation to us, and you will hear it loud and clear, and then around verse 4 and 5, he begins to actually point us to one of David's descendant, the greater than David, and then he comes back at verse 6, and he opens up the invitation. Again, listen to the invitation. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of Yahweh your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon him. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways, my ways, says Yahweh, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to be empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in that in the thing which I for which I sent it. And now turn with me to the gospel according to John, chapter six. John six, it's on page eight ninety one. We're going to start at verse twenty five, and I'm going to read right now through verse thirty four, and then I'll pick up verses thirty five through forty a little bit later in the sermon. Remember the context of John six. In verses 1 through 15, Jesus has taken sparse resources and he has satisfied over 5,000 people sumptuously. Right? You remember that? Did he over 5,000? I mean, just a few loaves of bread, sparse resources, and he has satisfied them sumptuously. And so what do they do? King Jesus 2024! And Jesus, notice, will have nothing to do with their political machinations. They will not be on their ticket. And so he leaves them behind. He crosses the Sea of Galilee. And then we come to verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set a seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, 
that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, one of the more funniest questions in the scriptures, then they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness it is, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you, gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you to God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, your servant Paul declared once and declared rightly that it is through you, Lord Jesus, that forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to all people. And by you, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which we could not be freed by the law of Moses. And so help us this day to get this and help those who may be struggling with this and turn all of our hearts to have an outward facing confidence in you. Amen. You may be seated. Again, kids, remember that little handout that's in your worship guide there. You will pull it out at some point on your own there. Parents, make sure they pull it out. And I've asked the kids to color in the, the, the specific solo for the day and then for you all to talk about it at, at lunchtime today. So I really would like you to do that. My friends, we, I want to talk to you about a zip line and three adults. Now, let me just tell you that this really happened. I was there. But what I'm about to tell you is not making fun of anyone who's afraid of heights, okay? So if you think I'm making, I am not making fun of anybody who's afraid of heights. But we went to a Boy Scout summer camp, Caleb, and, and, and later on Derek also went to this same Boy Scout summer camp called Camp Wahinape. It's in the Lincoln National Forest in New Mexico. It's 8,300 plus feet above sea level. And at this Boy Scout summer camp, at the back of the summer camp was the ropes course. Right? That's where, you know, you have a course with all these obstacles and they're all tied together with ropes and all that stuff. And there was one place back there that was kind of exciting for most of the adults. They all wanted to try this. It was the zip line. Does everybody know what a zip line is? Right? It's that metal cable that goes about usually 100 yards and it's about 30 feet off the ground and you have to strap onto it. And then you go and you, you scream like, you know, like bloody murder. Rah! Right, until you get to the other side. It's wonderful. I love it. I recommend it to everyone. Anyways, so here's this zip line. It's, uh, it's about 20 feet up or 15 to 20 feet up, and we have to climb up the ladder to get there. There were three adults. The first adult came to it, and he watched people zipping on it, and he knew that they had safety harnesses, and he knew it was safe because he knew the line wasn't breaking or anything. He knew the data. He knew the details. He knew he'd be okay. But he just couldn't go through with it. He just, I, I just can't do it. So that was the end of it. He knew the data and the details, and that was the end of it. And then there was a guy, he was a cop. He was one of those kind of cops that likes to run to the gunfire kind of cop. He's done things that most of you have never done. And he climbed up there and was going to do this. And he gets up there, he gets the harness on. You have to put a harness on so that you don't fall off and it hooks onto the cable. He puts it on, and then you have to sit on the platform and about the time he sits on the platform, the platform starts, starts shaking like this. He was terrified. 
He tried and tried and tried. He, he knew the data and the details. He could see the zip line. He could see the safety harness. He was assured that they, nobody had fallen to their deaths and you know been killed. He was assured of those things. He knew it would be the case for him, but he just could not trust in the zip line and all the harness. And that was the end of it. Well, then the other guy comes. He's a little crazy, but he got up there, strapped on the harness, put on the safety line, and went, yeah! And off he went. Because he trusted. He knew the data and the details. He, had a, he was assured that it would all work, and he believed. He entrusted himself to the safety of the harness and all of that. Well, keep that illustration in mind. It actually fits with the sermon to some extent. My friends, there, are, there were five of the family, valuable family heirlooms that had captured the hearts of several important church leaders in the 1500s. They're family heirlooms. Think about your family heirlooms. After a while, you get, you know, you get so used to them that sometimes you like to pack them away. Right? You put them in your, in your paper wrapper and you stuff them in a box carefully and then, and then you tell your husband or you, you do it or whatever. Go to the attic and put these in a special place in the attic. And something like that happened. These five family heirlooms have been packed away. They're part of the family system. They're part of the heritage of the family. The family's kind of always known they were there. They got packed away in the family attic somewhere. And then around the 1500s, some of the reformers who've been hearing some of these things start rummaging around the family attic, and lo and behold, there's this dusty box in there, and there's these things in there, and they pull them out, and they go, whoa, I've only heard of these things, but here they really are. They're five family heirlooms, valuable family heirlooms. They recovered those, and it sparked the drive to reform the church of Jesus Christ. These five gems we often call the five solas, the five onlys. Pastor West talked about the first one at the beginning, sola scriptura, scripture alone. My friend, Pastor Caleb Harper, talked about the second one, solus Christus, and Christ alone. West also, Pastor West also last week talked about the third one, sola gratia, and grace alone. Today we'll talk about sola fide, faith alone, and next week the last heirloom, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. So this morning we'll be looking into this fourth only, this fourth sola, sola fide, and specifically what does it mean to say that we are saved through faith alone? And so today as we ponder John 6, 25 through 40, we will see how sola fide is the work of God, sola fide is the way to God, and sola fide is the warmth of God. And there's your three points. Okay? The work of God, the way to God, the warmth of God. So the work of God. Sola fide is the work of God. Notice as we dive into this passage, and I really do encourage you to have your Bibles open to John 6 and keep them there and follow along because I'm going to expect you to. As we dive into our passage, the very first thing we meet with is that the crowds had a mistake, had mistaken aims. They had mistaken aims. Their hearts are in their bellies. Their hearts are in their bellies. That's what Jesus says in verse 26. Look, the reason why you're seeking me is not because of the sign where I fed over 5,000 of you with sparse resources. I satisfied you sumptuously. You're not seeking me because of the signs. You're seeking me because I filled your belly. You get it? Their hearts were in their bellies. They've been filled and satisfied and they want more of it. 
to the point that their appetite is driving their aim. Their appetite drives their aim. Now, we may think that that's a bit odd, that that's a one-off situation, that most people in their right minds would be that way. But my friends, the Apostle Paul tells us that this is actually a common problem having our appetites driving our aims, having our hearts in our bellies. The Apostle Paul, for example, I'm thinking of Romans 16, verses 17 to 18, if you're writing down references. The Apostle Paul warns the Roman believers about people who cause division in the church. And he says, avoid them, for such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites And that Greek sentence is actually, literally, they serve their belly. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And then in Philippians 3, the apostle goes on to say, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Appetites rule them. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Something like this, not quite the same, but very close, surfaces in James 4, the passage we read just before the confession of sin, James 4, 1 through 3, where James addresses where do the wars and fights and quarrels arise in our relationships? Where do they come from? And he says in James 4, he says it's because we have these desires and we have these passions, these appetites that have grown into rights and then become demands, which creates these conflicts that destroy our relationships. And so all of these passages together point out to us what you see clearly here in John 6. When our appetites drive our aims, when our appetites drive our aims, we end up missing Jesus. When our appetites drive our aims, we end up missing Jesus. And that's how you see things in verse Starting at verse 27. Notice what happens in verse 27. Jesus is working with them. He says, okay, you, you came to me. Or verse 26, uh, you're seeking me not because of the signs, but because you ate and filled the loaves. And then verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes. He's almost verbatim quoting from Isaiah 55 here. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seed. Don't miss me. Don't let your appetites drive you so that you completely bypass me. This is everything right here. Me and with me. And they do. They miss him. Look at verse 28. They said to him, well, then what must we do to be doing the works of God? What? Where did that question come from? They completely mishear Jesus and misfire and misaim because their appetites are driving their aims and therefore they miss Jesus. So our Lord replies that God's gift is God's work and that the gift and the work of God is faith. And that's in verse 29. Notice how Jesus says it. This is the work of God. They're saying, what works must we do? No, 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 no. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent and set his seal. This is the work of God. 
Well, they still get it all wrong. That funny question in verse 30, after Jesus has just fed them with very little resources and satisfied them all sumptuously, then they all come around and they they were just claiming Jesus for president 2024. And now all of a sudden, because they don't get Jesus and they're not figuring out what's going on here, they go, what sign are you going to show us? Hello, didn't you just eat? Right? Where did that question come from? What sign are you going to show us? And they just get it wrong. They think that maybe Moses is the one who fed them bread when their forefathers were in the wilderness. And so Jesus, our Lord, turns it all around to where it's all right. Verse 33, verse 32 and 33. It wasn't Moses that gave you the bread from heaven. It's my Father who gives you. Who gives you. I hope you're picking up this language. Who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, think about just for a moment, bread. What do you do? And, and, and you can, you'll have an illustration here in just a few minutes with the Lord's Supper. What do you do with bread when it's been given to you? You receive it, right? You receive it. And so the language all along that Jesus is using here will continue to use, but the language all along for the receiving of this bread of life, and remember this bread, as Jesus himself has said, is Jesus himself and what he gives This language of receiving the bread is the language of faith, is the language of believing. So up to this point, Jesus is carving out a clear contrast between working, kind of what Peter's son said, you know, me do, right? Working and believing. What is being presented here is this is so clear that a recent pope, not the present pope, but a recent pope, drew the right conclusions. And you have this in your sermon notes there. It's the long quotation from his book, Jesus of Nazareth, where Pope Benedict wrote these words about John 6, the passage we just read. Jesus' listeners are ready to work and do something to perform works in order to receive this bread, but it cannot be earned by human work, by one's own achievement. It can only come to us as a gift from God, as God's work. The whole of Pauline theology, all of Paul's theology, Pauline theology, the whole of Pauline theology, Pope Benedict went on to write, is present in this dialogue. The highest things, the things that really matter, we cannot achieve on our own. We have to accept them as gifts and enter to the dynamic of the gift, so to speak. Bingo! What a great statement. It's a great quotation. So then our Lord moves on and he moves forward with all of this to apply it to the crowds, but also to apply it to us. And it's in verses 35 through 40. So follow along as I read 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who 
looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up at the last day. Notice how coming to Jesus is actually used here in those verses three times, maybe four times, and also believing in Jesus and also looking upon Jesus or on Jesus or as the choir sang the song a minute ago, looking to Jesus. All of those are used in a synonymous fashion. And they're all about trusting in Christ, looking to Him, coming to Him, believing Him. They're about really being confident. He can do what he says will do. They're all different ways of describing the same thing. It is sola fide, faith alone. Now, start putting things together a little bit here. Notice verse 29. Faith is a gift of God to us. Secondly, verse 37. Those who come to Jesus and receive Jesus are actually, actually, actually the gift of the Father to the Son. That's pretty exciting. They're the gift of the Father to the Son. And then it all gets wrapped up in eternal life, verses 39 through 40. And the way we enter into this is, Jesus says, coming to Him, looking to Him, believing in Him. Sola fide, faithful. So my friends, when the reformers of the early 16th century put sola fide, that precious family heirloom, back on display in the parlor for all to see when they came to visit the house, they were pointing to how one receives the gift of Jesus, the way that one is saved. And looking at John 6 as one example out of loads of passages we could go to, and seeing that Jesus, what Jesus does with works and belief there, you cannot help but rightly conclude that we are rescued and saved through faith alone. Sola fide is the work of God. But dear friends, it is also the way to God. Sola fide. Let's talk about this a little bit more. Drawing from John 6, we have to say this. Sola fide is not about faith in faith. Are you picking that up? It's not about faith in faith. It's not about my ability to believe. Confidence in my ability to believe. Sola fide is not about my confidence in me being confident. Now you may go, well, nobody believes that. Hello? Are you in 21st century America? Please shake your head. You are. I cannot tell you as a pastor how many times I have to deal with this. Well, pastor, I don't know if I'm elect. Hello, do you believe in Jesus? Well, yeah, but it, that, but, but, no, wait! Now, I've had some of you kids ask me the same question. I hope your kids are listening. It's not about the quantity of your faith. It's not about the quality of your faith. It's about the quality of the one in whom you have faith. Like on that zip line, it wasn't the guy jumping off the, the platform and zipping along his own strength and confidence. It was everything he believed in, all that, that he trusted in. 
That's what got him down that zip line. It's the same thing. It's not the amount of your faith. It's not the strength of your faith. It's the strength and the, and the quality of the one in whom you have faith. That's sola fide. So Jesus here in John 6, he sweeps away all of those mistaken notions of, well, if you just had more faith, if you just, you know, you could be confident because you really believe strong or you're confident in your confidence. Oh, you don't have any confidence? Maybe you're not. He sweeps all that away with what's more accurate here in John 6. Faith alone is an outward facing rather than navel gazing. We say it again. Faith alone is an outward facing rather than navel gazing. If you're human, you do a lot of navel gazing. And that's where we find we have the most difficulties. Faith alone is outward facing rather than navel gazing, an outward facing assured confidence in Jesus Christ. That he is who and what he says he is and does what he says he does. It's that confidence in him. It's that trust in him, not in us. Sola fide means more than just simply the mere acceptance of data and details. It includes that, but it also means the assurance that, yeah, these data and detail are truthful. I, can, I know I can be confident in them. And then entrusting ourselves to the one that it's all about, to Jesus. There's the three parts of faith, but true, living, genuine faith. It's knowledge, being convinced of the truth about Jesus, and then trusting Jesus. Three parts. It's not three different aspects. It's just if you want to say a dissection of faith, of genuine faith, it's those three things belong together in genuine faith. But maybe that doesn't wow, your, wow you very much. It doesn't push your buttons. How about this one? From John Murray, from his little book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. It's in your sermon notes, I hope. If it is, I want you to underline the last sentence when I get there. John Murray wrote, the specific character of faith is that it looks away from itself. And it finds its whole interest and object in Christ. He is, he is the absorbing preoccupation of faith. Did you hear that? He is the absorbing preoccupation of faith. There's sola fide. Faith alone. So sola fide is the way to God. And it's there we find that sola fide is, in a sense, the warmth of God. And you may ask, well, how do, what do you mean by the warmth of God? Well, sola fide is the avenue by which we become right with God, if you will. It's how we become, uh, receive what's been done for us, and we find ourselves actually on God's good side. Seriously? Yeah. Isn't that amazing grace? We find ourselves on God's good side. And what do we do to get that? Nothing. We receive it. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. In Romans 3, and I believe Pastor West quoted this passage last week. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But there's no distinction 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified, are made right, are put in right standing with God, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins It was to show his righteousness at the the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Sola fide is about the warmth of God. Did you notice? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus came and forced the Father to love us. He didn't drag the father kicking and screaming and scratching and clawing. The father's not sitting in heaven saying, well, I don't know if I like Roberta. He does like her. I don't know if I like Roberta. I, I, I just don't know. I, her car is just not my kind of... I, you know, I don't want to Corvette. He doesn't do that. None of, nothing in Scripture tells us that. What it tells us is that God took the initiative and went the whole way. Why? For us and for our salvation. And what do we do to get it? So look at Faith alone. The warmth of God. It's not our faith really that saves us. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that rescues us. We simply entrust ourselves to him just like that fellow on the zip line. And when this happens, we find that God has heartily announced, heartily announced that we are holy, pure, forgiven by the grace of God alone because of Jesus Christ alone. We find that God is and has been warm toward us all along and not wrathful like we deserve. He's been warm toward us all along and not wrathful like we deserve. Here's how the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, and I love this little definition of justification, but you get the sense. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by Faith alone. Wow. We find that God is not off at a distance grumbly and grumpy over us. And that Jesus, find that Jesus has not somehow dragged him to us, kicking and wriggling with regret. Instead, we find that the Father has wanted us all along. Those who come to me, the Father has given to me, and I will lose none of them. The Father has wanted us all along, and he has made the way for us. Because, why? Because he is warm toward us. And what do we do to get it? Faith alone. Sola fide. It gives us rock-hard hope. Not rock hard hope and how we feel. There's nothing wrong with feelings. I like feelings. Can you tell? But not the Walt Disney kind of thing. You know, follow your heart. Where it, it rules you like your appetites and thus make you miss Jesus. It doesn't give us rock hard hope in our feelings. It doesn't give us rock hard hope in our assurances. It doesn't give us rock hard hope in our Christianness. It doesn't give us rock hard hope in our ability to politic heaven and make God finally like us. No, sola fide gives us rock hard hope in Jesus. Rock hard confidence. 
that Jesus is saving us. And I will lose none of them. And I will raise them up on the last day. Rock hard assurance that Jesus will save us. Rock hard joy that our Father wants us no matter what we're going through. That, my friends, is what lit the fires of the Reformation. That is what fueled the reformers energized with longing to bring reform to God's church. Sola fide. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord our God, that this family heirloom was found. It's been there all along. We've heard of it in Scripture. We even run across faithful men and women throughout the centuries referring back to it, but it was so delightful that, that you had at that moment some find this and put it back on display for all to see. Forgive us, Lord God, when we try to build up our confidence in our confidence. When we try to strengthen our faith and faith, Place all of our hopes and our assurance. Forgive us when we also allow our aims to drive, our ambitions to drive our aims and we miss Jesus. Lord, I pray for some of the kids in our church who we've had this discussion. That you'd be with them. And they would find them here with great joy. This is how they know that they're your child. Because you've saved them and they believe that. They would rejoice in what you have done. Pray for adults who doubt their salvation, who doubt that you are able to even save them. Lord, that you would today strangely warm their hearts, as John Wesley once said. They would rejoice. In your grace alone, through Christ alone, received by faith alone. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.